I know what you're thinking. How in the world is Mitch going to preach a sermon based on that? We are shifting gears this morning. Can we go to the next slide, Ben? Uh, so far, we've been doing short introductions to characters in the Bible. And so far, we've looked at four men. The Apostle Peter, the High Priest Aaron, King Saul, and the Prophet Jonah. And now we're looking at four women in the Bible. Tamar, Bathsheba, Miriam, and Mary. And today we're focusing on this woman who only has one chapter in the entire Bible dedicated to her. So it's going to be a short introduction. But the surprise of Tamar's story is that this tiny little thread that starts in the Old Testament continues all the way, and her name ends up on the first page of the New Testament. Her name is Tamar, and her whole story messed with my plan for this sermon series. I've been focusing on moral or ethical change, right? Peter was a traitor, and he became brave. We saw Saul start out as a good king and then destroy his own life and just self-destruct. But today, I want to focus on Tamar's story, not because she changes from a saint to a sinner or a sinner to a saint, but because her story itself is almost written out of the Bible, the other characters in the story want her to be deleted. They want her to be removed. But God won't let Tamar be erased. If you read biblical scholars who talk about this passage, they'll dedicate whole books to Genesis. They'll mention Tamar in passing and then just move on. They'll say she has nothing to do with the broader story. We don't know why she was put into the book of Genesis in the first place. And so they move on and they don't talk about Tamar. But today we are going to talk about Tamar because her story is confusing. What she does is sometimes dark. It's morally questionable. At the same time, what she does is understandable. You might think in one moment, well, I can't believe she chose that option. But in another moment, you think, well, I don't know what other options she has. She resorts to one of her very last options given the difficult situation she's stuck in. But the big question we're going to ask is not what Tamar does or what Judah does. We're going to ask what God is up to in this story. What does God have in mind? And here's why this story needs to matter to you if it doesn't already. In every single time and place, men and women find themselves in very complex situations, and they don't know how to navigate their life wisely and with integrity. And one response in a, in a difficult era or a difficult culture is to become a naive optimist where you think, I'm going to change the world in a day. I know things seem difficult for me. They seem challenging and complex, but I'm going to change it all. The other option is to shrug your shoulders, become a passive recipient of whatever happens to you and say, and say this is my lot. These are the cards I've been dealt. Either we're tempted to become naive optimists or apathetic fatalists. Christians today, I think, especially succumb to this second attitude. We see how much the world around us is changing so quickly, and we become defeatist. We say, well, it's a secular world out there, so we shouldn't try anything. We begrudge the time in which we live, and we write ourselves out of God's story. But I want, to look, I want us to look at Tamar's life again because she had very little wiggle room 
And she had to maneuver a very complex situation with wisdom and shrewdness. But ultimately, I want you to see how God works through her decisive actions to keep her from being written out of his story. Now, before we dive in, you need background. If you didn't grow up in church, you may not know what builds up to this story. God had chosen a man named Abraham and through him to make a great nation out of him. He had a son named Isaac, who then had only uh, the, the next covenant son was Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. This is where we see the promise of a great nation really start to get going. And Jacob had a favorite son named Joseph. And all the other 11 brothers uh, hated the fact that Joseph was the favorite. And so this hatred in them bruised until one day they catch Joseph and sell him into slavery. And the brother who thought of that slavery idea was Judah. So at the same time that Joseph is being sold into slavery and headed down to Egypt, Judah does everything in this story. Judah goes down to Adullam. He wants to spend some time with his friend Hira. He's unmarried. He meets his future wife, and over a stretch of years, they have three sons. And eventually, his oldest son is ready to be married, so Judah finds him a wife named Tamar, and we have the first tragedy of this story. The firstborn son is wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord puts him to death. Now, we're given no details about why he was wicked, what he did, how or when God put him to death. All we know is that Tamar is already a widow, presumably as a young woman, maybe even in her teens. This story begins with death. Now, early death was common enough for a custom to have grown up called leveret marriage. This is probably one of the weirdest parts of the story for the people in this room. Levere is Latin for brother-in-law, and so what it meant was that the brother-in-law of the childless woman, of Tamar, was expected to sleep with her until she got pregnant. Now, you might think gross, but you may not know what it's like to be a widow at this time. Without a husband, without a son, without a family to help you, a widow was often condemned to social isolation and economic destitution. Poor, all by herself, with no recourse. This custom had built up to help widows, not hurt them. And so Judah tells his second son, Onan, to fulfill this duty. But Onan knows that if he gets Tamar pregnant, the child technically wouldn't be his. It was to continue the line of the first husband. But Onan still wants to sleep with Tamar, so he ensures that she won't conceive. And this makes God so upset that he fails to, that Onan fails to fulfill this responsibility that he also puts Onan to death. This is the second time that Tamar has been married and widowed. If you don't feel an ounce of sadness for her, we're not reading the same story. This woman may be in her teens and her early 20s, has already had two marriages and already widowed twice. Now, Judah starts to panic. Because if he gives his third son to Tamar, well, maybe that son is going to die too. And that's going to leave Judah without a line of sons to continue his name. And Judah may be thinking, well, there's one common denominator in this whole story, and it's Tamar. So if I marry off Sheila to her, Sheila's going to die too. Judah doesn't really think that maybe it's his son's character that's the issue. So instead of doing what the custom prescribed, Judah tells Tamar, go live as a widow in your father's household until my son grows up. 
Y'all, this is selfish intent. He's worried he's not going to have any children to continue his name, but does he worry at all for this twice-bereaved widow? No, he's thinking about number one. He's thinking about himself because he never has a plan to give his third son to Tamar. We know this from a later verse. Sheila does grow up over the years, and still Tamar is never given to him as wife. Judah is putting her off, postponing a marriage, making sure she is socially isolated and destitute. So much time passes with Tamar waiting around in her father's household that Judah himself becomes a widower. And what's the first thing he does? He goes on vacation. He doesn't think, man, life as a widow is, is lonely. Maybe Tamar has been feeling this way this for, for years. Maybe I should finally give my son to Tamar. No, no, no. He's still thinking about number one, not Tamar. She's out of Judah's mind, and he wants her to stay out of his sight as well. So at this point in the story, you've got to ask yourself, if you're in Tamar's shoes, what options do you have left? She has every reason to think that she's done for. I mean, why in this society would she be taken seriously? What is she going to do? Take Judah to court? With what legal team? With what social standing? She has very few options left. And this world, this culture that she lives in is not going to change anytime soon. And she is no fool to think that her whole culture is going to change overnight. However, Tamar refuses to be written out of this story. She refuses to be passive. So she changes out of her grieving clothes and she decides she's going to beat Judah to Timnah. She's going to get there first. She sits at the entrance to the city and she waits for him to arrive. And we don't know what she was wearing, but the fact is that Judah's first thought at seeing her is that she is a prostitute. Now, he doesn't recognize her because of the veil over her face, but he doesn't avert his eyes. He doesn't look away from her. No, his first act now is to make a proposition to this woman. And he just cuts to the chase. Come now, let me sleep with you. He goes straight to a goods for services business transaction. And so she asks, well, what will you give me? Now, Judah says, I'm going to give you a young goat from my flock. And this is actually probably a diversion tactic. He promises to pay way after they've slept together. But Tamar is not going to be tricked by this. She wants something now. What will you give me as a pledge? And Judah says, well, what pledge should I give you? And she basically says the ancient version of an ID and credit cards and a wallet. Give me your seal, your cord, and the staff in your hand. And immediately, without hesitation, Judah gives these objects to her and sleeps with her. And we know something that Judah does not know immediately, that she became pregnant by him. Now, Judah goes back home. Tamar takes off her veil, puts on her widow's clothes again. And Judah, maybe a couple weeks later, decides, well, I kind of want my ID back. So he sends his friend down to get these valuable possessions. He sends the goat that he promised. And Hira, his friend, can't find this shrine prostitute anywhere. And Judah says, you know what? We're just going to keep our mouths shut because I gave her really valuable items and uh, we're just going to forget about what happened or else we'll become a laughingstock. Now, from that point, three months pass. 
This is plenty of time for a confession on Judah's part if he's felt an ounce of guilt for doing something he, know he knows he shouldn't. But the only thing we hear is a message brought to Judah after the first trimester. Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Now, we know it's going to be law later in Israel's history that if any claims are made of any kind of misconduct, you need multiple witnesses, you need evidence. But based on one single message, what does Judah do? He says, bring her out and have her burned to death. He's rushing to execute her because he's trying to erase her from the story. Maybe he's had it out for her for a long time. Maybe he blames her for the death of his first two sons. And so any excuse that Judah has, he's going to jump on to get rid of Tamar. However, before she's burned at the stake, Tamar sends a little message, a little gift to Judah and says, I happen to be pregnant by the man who owns these. I'm just curious, Judah, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Do you know? Tamar planned this ahead of time. Because in her day, there's no such thing as DNA tests. There's no proof of paternity. She knows that Judah's going to lie and cover this up. But here's this seal, cord, and staff, his credit cards with his name all over it. And it identifies Judah immediately. Judah sees them and declares the most important line in the story. She is more righteous than I since I would not give my son to her. Okay. We read this whole chapter, and we don't see one time where God's name is mentioned. What is God up to? I think that God is turning the tables on Judah for the sake of Tamar. I think God is convicting Judah of his sin by the obvious evidence of his sin. I think God is vindicating the goals and intentions of Tamar. And I think those things because of what happens six months later. As Tamar was giving birth to these two boys, one son puts out his hand and the midwife takes a scarlet thread and ties it on his wrist and says, this one comes out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out, and she said, so this is how you have broken out, and he was named Perez. It's a very bizarre birth story, among many bizarre birth stories in the Bible. But it reveals a scriptural pattern. God blesses Tamar with two sons after one encounter with Judah. Just like God blessed Eve with Cain and Abel, just like God blessed Abraham with Isaac and Ishmael, just got, like God blessed Rebekah with Jacob and Esau, and just like God will bless Joseph with Ephraim and Manasseh. This is not a coincidence. This is not an interesting fact. This is a pattern of God bringing new life into the world from her womb. She is not a random woman whose story is arbitrarily included in the book of Genesis. She is now a matriarch and mother of Israel because her son Perez is the ancestor of King David, who just so happens to be the ancestor of King Jesus. God uses Tamar's actions in this story to include her in the greatest lineage of all human history. She ends up in the royal family because of this. 
This story begins with the death of two wicked sons, and at the end of it, God has given two new, brand new baby boys life. Many years after this story, in the last chapter of the book of Ruth, the women in the town are giving a blessing to Ruth's husband, and they say, through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez. It becomes a blessing in Israel to say, I hope that your family is like the family of Perez, son of Tamar. Now we know Tamar's story is tragic from the beginning. She has a wicked husband who dies and leaves her behind. She has a second husband who refuses her chance of being a mom. She has refused a third because the father blames her for the first two deaths. And then this hypocrite father tries to kill her. This is her life. This is what she's been dealt. But she refuses to be written out of this story. And God vindicates her. God ensures a permanent place in the history of his people for her. Now here's the thing. This sermon is not about the ends justifying the means. Whatever Tamar does is okay. We can be frank about what she does. She sleeps with her father-in-law. She pretends to be a prostitute. We don't have to whitewash these details. But I think her goal is so much deeper and more profound. She calls upon these men to live according to their law. She navigates a situation that is stacked against her. And God vindicates her. Now, we've been asking this big question throughout this series. Can God really change men and women? Can God make us holy? Can God make us righteous? Can God make our lives more and more beautiful and more and more like Christ? But here's the important thing. All of that is true. God can do that. He can change our hearts and minds for the better, but we can't change the fallen world in which we live overnight. We can't transform earth into heaven, and Tamar knew that, and she did the best she could given her constraints. Now, fast forward over 3,000 years later, God knows the constraints and challenges of our culture. God knows that we live with a com in a complex world. And if God knows that, then he has enough mercy to understand why we do what we do. God saw that Tamar was owed justice. And God saw that Judah had delayed her, manipulated her, used her, and discarded her. And God refused for Judah's word to be the final say. And it was shown, proven, that Tamar was the most righteous one in the story. I think Tamar's story is so crucial for our church. Because I think right now we can be tempted in one of two directions. With all the challenges we're facing, we could think, well, maybe things are going to change overnight. Maybe we're on the precipice of, of everything in our culture changing and all of our challenges going away. But barring a miracle, that ain't happening. The other temptation is to be passive, to be apathetic, to think, well, we have no options and this is the lot we're stuck with and this is the hand we're dealt, so we're not going to do anything. But we can't write ourselves out of God's story that he is writing here. We have no idea the different ways God could work on this corner. And just because we aren't morally perfect or morally pristine doesn't mean God won't work through us and in us here at UA. By his grace and mercy, Tamar's very messy story becomes an anchor for the rest of Israel's future. 
big question for us is what if God uses the messy story of this church for the next hundred years? That's my prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we can think of so many times throughout church history where Christians just feel overwhelmed. We don't know how to navigate the constraints and difficulties and challenges of our culture. And sometimes we can just be naive. We can think we'll change everything tomorrow. Other times we can be fatalistic. We can think, well, there's nothing to do. It's hopeless. Father, give us eyes to see the real challenges we're facing. Give us sober minds to know that these challenges are not going to change overnight. And Father, give us wisdom. Make us shrewd like Tamar. Help us to navigate this challenging world. Give us hope for the future of what you could do with this church. Father, we, we want to be part of the story you're writing. We don't want to write ourselves out of it. We don't want anybody to write us out of it. We want to be part of that story. Father, help us, especially those who are considering the futures of this church. We can feel the burden and weight of this task. Some of these obstacles, we just, we don't know how to overcome. Give us wisdom, give us your Holy Spirit, and give us strength to keep moving forward, to keep being decisive. And Father, forgive us when we fall short of your ways. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.